You're listening to the Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever El Cooley Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, you'll hear from Ted Wilson. Ted was interviewed by Matt Driscoll in 2011. Ted is best known for being mayor of Salt Lake City, a member of the Alpenbach Climbing Club, and involved in multiple rescues, including on the north face of the Grand Teton. Hope you enjoy. <laughs> okay. All right, it's September 9th, 2011, and I'm Erin Halcombe, sitting here with Matt Driscoll. Ted Wilson, and um, today we're going to talk about um, some of Ted's backcountry skiing experience and hopefully transition later into his political career. So, um, Ted, you had made mention in your earlier um, interview that around the age of 15 or so, you traversed from Alta into what is now Snowbird. Um, but primarily... Especially from Brighton to Alta. Oh, Brighton to Alta. Yeah. Okay. I did some Snowbird. I did some Alta to Snowbird later, but uh, originally it was from Brighton over to Alta. Almost um, killed in the entire high school ski club. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you said primarily in early college, lift cables came out, and then you started touring all over the Wasatch, and so I was curious if you could describe lift cables a little more and and then how you, uh, where you went and how you did it. Well, by lift cable, I think Aaron, you're referring to the ancient ski binding, which uh, in those days was a toe plate, absolutely no safety factor involved, just your, your foot went into two side plates, fit in the middle of it. So you couldn't twist out of it. And then a cable ran from a, uh, a push bar that was up front that you could tighten by pushing the bar forward, and it went back around your heel. And then you had two sets of restrainers. Uh, there were two restrainers on each side that held the cable down. And if you were skiing downhill, you would have both engaged. If you wanted a little bit of heel lift, about that much, you couldn't get a lot. It's not like the new bindings. Uh, you would disengage the second set of, of cable guides. 
and then you could actually walk uphill a little bit. But my first adventure was when I was, I think I was 15, maybe 16. Uh, I was president of the South Lake Ski Club. And uh, I had read it or heard of adventurous people that had gone from Brighton over to Alton. That was not done very much in those days. And so I got the big idea, and I talked my sponsor in, who was a very, very nice young woman. I didn't know she was a young man, but she was, into uh, taking ski club which on that day turned out to be about 15 people from Brighton to Alton. This is probably about 1957, maybe 58. And we went to Brighton. We drove up to Brighton. And we put on our skis. We did not have any kind of skins or climbing base on the skis at all. We were sidestepping. So I think we probably kept both of those engaged because it's hard to sidestep when you're Kill lifts, you know, kind of throws you off. And we proceeded to use the worst possible avalanche route that anyone could. We traversed right under the north face of Mount Millicent, which in those days was uncontrolled and probably was dangerous for avalanches. It was mid season, so avalanches were, were possible. We probably had a good day or we would have gotten it. <laughs> we traversed under the face of Millicent sort of sidestepped our way up the far left side of Millicent and then entered uh, the upper Wolverine Bowl uh, and then traversed around and actually traversed around the south side of Wolverine down to Catherine Pass. And after Catherine Pass, we brought down to Alton. We had a great day. We stopped for lunch somewhere along the way. Um, and... No one was killed. <laughs> it's always a good day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that was my first experience because prior to that, I had ridden the lifts up and then hiked higher to go get, ski a bowl or something, you know, kind of like people do now. But I'd never really done any backcountry skiing per se. And, and that didn't occur until maybe a year or so later when I went down to the old Army Navy Surplus store out on 62nd South and bought some war surplus climbing skins. And these were white climbing skins made out of sort of a nylon. Uh, they call them skins because the original ones were seal skins. And seal skins have a very radical uh, kind of uh, fur layer on them that's quite angled so that they will slide a little bit one way, but grip the other way. And this was a knockoff from that, that the Army used in World War II for their mountain troops. And we bought skins, and they were loose, and they didn't stay on well, and you wound up using tape to hold them on, and it was a big mess. And if you want to get them off for a little sliding, you had to cut the tape and then retape them and put it back on. But we, we did that. And we started investigating the Wasatch. We started going up into the high bowls and, and doing what you might call uh, backcountry skiing, yo-yo skiing, where we climb up and ski down, climb up and ski down. And who's we? Well, it was my friends, mainly the old Alpenbach Club, Rick Reese, Milt Hokanson, um, Alexis Kellner, kind of a familiar figure, a ski historian, by the way, a really interesting guy, uh, Steve Swanson, Rob, Bob Irvine, the old Alpenbach crowd, basically. We were climbers and we were also skiers. 
and we didn't put the two together so much. Right. We were not not exactly ski mountaineers, but we did get out and, and ski virgin snow. Of course, in those days, you could get virgin snow on the ski lifts, so there wasn't a lot of premium going out there, but it was just kind of, I think we attracted by the discovery of new areas in the Wasatch, and looking on a map and seeing a bowl somewhere, now you know, you know all about it, where it was, how to get there. In those days, it was kind of, we were exploring the Wasatch, not for the first time, other people had done it, but for us, it was a pure exploration. And uh, we got a lot of good skiing in, too. I remember some of it. We were worried about avalanches. That came to our attention because there had been a number of avalanches, and some of them were fatal. What was the avalanche forecasting like then? There was none. No. No, we did that. I mean, hadn't been thought of. Uh, and we had no uh, modern electronic beacons. Uh, so what we did was we would tour with about, oh, 30 feet of nylon cord wrapped around our waist to the trail behind us. And the theory was if you were caught in an avalanche, people could follow the cord down to where you were. If the cord stayed on top of the snow. Well, it would. I think most cases, unless the snow were deeper than the cord, but 30 feet of avalanche, a lot of avalanche. The problem is, if it's on an angle, and people have to start digging over here, it's going to take a long time to get to you. You need to go straight down to somebody. But it was the best we had, and we learned by reading books uh, to spread out, not all be together. We learned when we skied, one person goes, the others watch, and then that person finds a safe place to stand and get out of the way or whatever. And then another person goes. I mean, we started learning the basic rules of backcountry skiing, even then. And uh, and then over time, that sort of tradition caught on. And we became, as equipment got better. And, uh, you know, up until now, we still go do that. We don't do it with cords anymore. We have these new hot AT skis, you know, that do have safety buttons and have wonderful lockdown devices. Uh, I gave up telemarketing several years ago because I'm too old and too tired to do it. <laughs> uh, but we had a ton of fun. I mean, it was a very rich time to be young in the Wasatch because uh, Wasatch now is pretty crowded, pretty competitive. Even some of the backcountry bowls are eaten up by the dawn patrollers, and I could never dawn patrol them. By the time I get there now, I'm usually into the side pickings, you know. (laughs) Uh, That's fine. I love the fact that a lot of people are getting out and enjoying the mountains. So were most of your descents at that time fixed heel? I mean, you talk like you had a little bit of... Uh, in, the, in the original day, yeah, we would clamp the heel down when we skied. But then uh, about, golly, I would say the early, late 60s or early 70s, telemarketing came back. And in those days, we called it three-pinning because uh, you had the telemark binding without any kind of heel arrangement on it. And it had three little pins that your boots had three pinholes 
and it would fit over that and you'd lock it down. Again, no safety feature except that your heel was lifting, which is quite a safety feature. And we, we then converted over to those. And we originally skied on very narrow skis that are, and long. You know, the average length was probably about 205 to 210 centimeters. And we skied all over the Wasatch now with these lighter skis. Uh, and we generally telemarked her. You didn't have to. You could alpine turn them, although it was somewhat of a challenge because, you know, if you're weighted forward at all, it tended to do that on you. But we could do both, and we enjoyed that period of time. That that period of time lasted maybe from about 1967, 68, until maybe the late 70s. Um, and at that point, um, people started to make plastic boots, uh, more substantial bindings, uh, so wider skis, wider skins, heavier gear. Uh, you know, there were a number of years we, we made that transition. And then finally, somebody said one day, hey, you know, these might work better if we lock the heel down. So climbing, or skiing had made a complete evolution. <laughs> we had gone from locked heels to locked heels. And people started skiing with, with uh, what were called Alpine Touring Bindings, APS. ATVs, whatever we call them. And we slowly started to convert over into locking our heels down. And some of my buddies still don't lock their heels down. They, they still like the tree heel, which as many people do. Uh, some of them still keep their ski telemark. I gave up on it. My knees started barking at me. It was my excuse. And uh, so, you know, we ski with AT skis now, basically. Well, we try to buy them as light as possible. Although the new gear with bigger skis and bigger skins has brought weight back into the equation. It's pretty hard to have a big rig like the riders do, you know, on the big white skis now. Uh, it's pretty hard to get the weight weight down. We like to have the weight down. We used to go a long ways. We had a couple of traditions. One was we always went out. We met at 7.30 in the morning on New Year's Day at one of the parking lots. We'd go for a New Year's Day ski tour. And they were pretty ambitious. I mean, they were like, climb Mount Superior and then ski down Lake Blanche, which is a pretty good day. Or uh, go climb the Pfeiffer Horn and ski out um, uh, Bell's Canyon. Or do what we call the the Utah Hotrude, I call it, where you go up uh, Red Pine, cross over into it's the first fork there you cross over into uh, from Red Pine, Maybird Gulch, then over the Maybird Ridge into Hogan Fork, then up over Thunder Mountain and down. Uh, uh, Bell's Canyon. That was a pretty good day. And that's that's a long trip, and you know we were younger and we enjoyed those longer days. And then we started skiing the Y Couar, which is a steep couar that drops back into Little Cottonwood. And then another tradition we had that we did, I think, three times, maybe four times, 
was in the spring when we started to get corn snow and the sun would come out in the morning and melt the frozen snow down about that far. We would put our skis on our packs and we would climb the south ridge of Mount Superior. And I think we were the first ones to actually ski that big face on Superior, which is almost had moguls on it now at certain times. An adventuresome ski. It was for us. Uh, we had to be really careful. There were several clip bands in there you could go off. And, and we weren't riding it. Nobody rode in those days. You know the difference between riding and skiing and turning? The new, the new way of skiing backcountry now is to be on your wider skis. I laugh. I call it two snowboards. <laughs> and you ski like you go 40 miles an hour like this, like a snowboard. And you can see it in the Warren Miller films or the latest ski movie. Uh, we skied like this. We turned our skis. And so there's been an evolution to the riders that like to go out and ride their skis. They go very fast. They need very wide skis to do it. Uh, and they like to jump over cliffs, which we did not. <laughs> we, we avoided cliffs. <laughs> But we did ski some pretty hefty terrain. I think the the first descent we made, I don't know if we were the first, we probably weren't, but the first time we skied that direct south face of Mount Superior, we were very proud of ourselves. And we did it on corn snow. Uh, we got down the bottom, we figured that was a big deal. So we did that a couple of times. It was one of our traditional things to do. Um, it's a pretty classic route now, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's done a lot more now. But people now, they climb the East Ridge, which is a lot easier than the South Ridge. South Ridge is longer and steeper and takes some mountaineering ability. But we were climbers. We didn't have any trouble climbing. Now skiers are not necessarily climbers, so they'll go the easier way. But uh, And the Pfeiffer Horn in the winter was a challenge. We often climbed the North Ridge of the Pfeiffer Horn, which is kind of a mountaineering route. Not short, but it's a nice little mountaineering route. And then we ski off the Pfeiffer Horn, or we go ski off American Fork, and we were some of the first guys at Alta to ski the Baldy Chutes, uh, which were... And I don't want to give you the idea that we were big bravados. We were very cautious doing all these things. Uh, we could ski it. We didn't side-slip it or, you know... Um, we made turns, but we were not ever over the edge trying to put ourselves in real danger. Um, did you do any overnight traversing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we we liked to, we had heavy gear. I mean, like old army pup tents and big mountain stove, junk. It was heavy. But I remember several, several trips where we would go, like, maybe camp at the top of Red Pine Canyon uh, and ski in that area. Uh, went to the Uintas several times and skied over there. Uh, yeah, we like to camp out. And then did you expand beyond um, Utah? Had you gone into Nevada at all? The Rubies? Or? No, we didn't go to the Rubies. Uh, we, we tried a couple of times skiing out in the Oakers. We figured that the high skiing in the Oakers might be good. The problem with the Oakers is getting up there. See, the thing you have in the Wasatch is these roads that take you up to 8,000, 9,000 feet. 
Uh, so you, you can ski the Crean backcountry skiing from 9,000 to 11,000. Uh, the Elk Wars takes you all day to get to 8,000 by hiking. There really aren't many roads that go up very high. Well, unless you're over by Kennecott, and I can guarantee they have not improved the skiing. So we never, you know, might be able to get higher over there. So we never, we tried a couple of ventures into the Oakers and got some sort of scratchy scheme, but we didn't think it was worth it. So, and I don't think hardly anyone skis the Oakers these days. What's the access like to the Oakers even now? That's not good. Yeah. I mean, you can talk Kennecott and letting you go onto their south property down there out of Butterfield, but they've got gates and warning signs. And, uh, there are some roads that they use for their own purposes, but they won't let skiers in there. Uh, we skied, uh, we did ski the Stansberries on occasion. We, mainly in the spring, we'd go hike Deseret Peak out there and ski those big bullies up Deseret Peak. Uh, we did some backcountry skiing in the Tetons. We uh, we skied up to the lower saddle, climbed the Grand one May, came back down and skied down from the lower saddle, which is about a five thousand five hundred foot descent. Very nice. So we got into other ranges on skis, but mainly we. When we went to other ranges, we thought more of mountaineering and less of the skiing. Right. But very little skiing as good as this. Anyway, if you're back from skiing. Were there any women that joined your Yes, there were. Explorations? Uh, a wonderful friend of ours named Michael Hatch, a woman named Michael, and we called her Mike. And she was a very good climber and a strong skier, and she used to go out with us. Uh, we were all in love with her, so men were scared to approach her because we thought she was going with the other guy, but she never was. <laughs> she told me later on when she was 50 years old, I said, I really want a date with you, my younger kids. And she said, why didn't you ask me? And I said, because I thought you were going out with Rick. She said, I never went out with Rick. And then Rick told me he wanted a date with her, but he never asked her because he thought she was going out with me. It was a Bad deal for both of us. Probably a good deal for Michael. <laughs> um, Patty Pomeroy went out skiing with us. Um, and generally, these were, you know, it, it was much of the culture then for women to be in the mainstream like we are now, where, you know, you might go skiing because women love to go do what men do. In those days, women were more like invited. Or they were one of our girlfriends who thought she'd like to go out with us. And she was a good enough skier that she could do it. And generally, in those situations, we had to give them the basic education on skins and avalanches, kind of brief them because they were not into backcountry skiing except coming along as tagalongs. So the entire nature of women in backcountry sports has changed. Women are now aggressive get out and do it. Some of them are on the leading edge of the tough stuff. And so I give them all the credit to that, I think, is Title IX, which was a, an amazing piece of legislation which told women that they were, it was okay to be physically active. You know, prior to Title IX, I think women in all sports were 
pretty contained and pretty discouraged. So if we could revisit um, the avalanche um, concerns, you know, what kind of briefing would you give? Um, did you guys talk a lot about it, common sense, or had you started carrying shovels at some point? Um, well, you know, maybe 10 years after we started backcountry skiing, then we got initiated into reading the snow, digging pits, looking for slide layers, using techniques to measure temperature gradients. We actually were more scientific there for a while than we are now uh, because we were concerned about it. But for 10 years, it was more, we know there is there are avalanche dangers. We know it snowed a lot last night, so it's probably spooky today. Let's be extra careful. Let's not ski on the really steep stuff. Let's go on. You know, and I think we understand, stood the most dangerous terrain was not the steepest because real steep snow tends to sort of slide off on its own in process of the snowstorm and meets a low point of gravity. So you can ski really steep snow safely then you can ski snow like this. The most dangerous area is between about 28 and about 35 degrees. And so it's kind of in there that it's very, very dangerous because the snow sticks and stays and then it's steep enough to slide. Or if it's less than 28 degrees, you know, you're probably pretty safe. So we had that in our heads. And when we just kind of figured, without knowing snow layers and all that, that it was probably a touchy day, we were extra careful. Or we would actually do some ski cutting. We understood how to do that. And you know, ski off a ridge, somebody would go first. And we actually used to carry a small rope with us. So that the first guy to ski cut it, which would mean coming off the ridge and pushing the skis sliding across on a traverse line, the slide would go out below you and leave you at the top and you really weren't victimized by it. And that's a technique used now by skiers and ski patrol people and stuff. And we would carry maybe a 50-foot rope so that if we were going off a wind-loaded ridge, which is not a good idea on bad days, but we, we did it, we would, the first person down would normally have a rope so that if they pushed the slide off and they went with it, we could stop. So, we're pretty, I think we were actually pretty savvy. I mean, I look back on it, we we're all alive. Right. <laughs> that says something. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about your when you were in Europe? Um, did you did that influence your skiing? Was there backcountry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the year I lived in Europe, it was just one year. Uh, I did a lot of backcountry skiing. I did the Haute Route, which uh, we did in reverse. Most people now go from Chamonix, France, over to Zermatt, or even over to Sussex, Switzerland. Uh, we started in Zermatt and went the other way over to Chamonix. And it took us a week. We stayed in huts. You know, the greatest backcountry ski trip maybe in the world. Um, now it's so crowded you could barely get on it. In those days, we'd go into huts when there were only five or six other people there. And um, so it was, I think we did it in March of 1965. This is the year we did the Otrude. I did a lot of backcountry skiing around Zermatt, uh, some over by Verbier, and the village I lived in, Lausanne. Uh, 
had some very good high backcountry skiing where you could get up above the, the lifts with some big bowls up there. One of my best friends up there was tragically killed. His name was Dougal Hostin. He was a world-class climber. He climbed the southwest face of Mount Everest, uh, done a lot of big routes in the Alps. So he really was world-class. He decided to go skiing on his own one day and went up into one of these bowls. This this happened years after I'd left Lisbon. And he came down and avalanche got him and killed him. Um, how did Europe change your style or inform it? Um, gear, were they using different gear, um, different skis? Well, I, Europe toughened me up. Um, the Alps are much more serious proposition than the Western Mountains of the United States. Uh, they're higher, they're more heavily glaciated, and they have much tougher weather. Uh, the rock varies more if you're climbing. Uh, you have to kind of know all techniques more than you might here. With Tetons, you know, there's a certain way of climbing the Tetons that you can get really good at and allows you to move fast. In the Alps, there's always some complication that doesn't allow that. Uh, I think it just kind of toughened me up. I, I skied and climbed with some very, very sophisticated skiers and climbers. Uh, people like John Harlan and Dougal Houston and uh, although Dougal was not much of a skier. Uh, in fact, he and I went to climb the north face of the Tourmayen, which is a really nice thousand foot north face in the winter. We went up to the lift on skis and we didn't get off the thing until about 7.30 or 8 at night. It was dark. We had to ski back down to the village. And so I put on my skis and I took off and I made 20 or 30 turns and stopped to wait for Dougal. And I look up and Harry is coming straight down, totally out of control. It just does this enormous crash. I said, Dougal, what's up with you, man? He says, first time I bloody skied. <laughs> he never skied before. So his technique that night was to go 30 miles an hour and then just eat it all the way to the village. Toughest guy ever. <laughs> a year later, he was skiing. You know, I mean, he, I didn't know he couldn't ski. But, you know, I was able to really associate with some of the best mountaineers in the world when I lived in the Alps, both climbing and skiing. And, and I was delighted that I could kind of hang with them. You know, I didn't, wouldn't have thought I could. I was just a kid from Salt Lake. But they're human too, and, you know. They're as frightened as you are. <laughs> so that was fun for me. I had a great year in the Alps. What were you teaching in Switzerland? Well, I originally went over to run the ski school. I was a ski instructor, and I was contacted by John Harland, who's a very famous mountaineer. Uh, and he was a sports director in this private school in Lausanne, Switzerland. John invited me over to run the ski program. And so I ran the ski program that winter for about 250 students. And every day at 1.30, they would meet at the ski hill in winter as part of their curriculum. We'd divide them up into classes. Some of them had free skiing that day. Others had classes that day. And I had about eight instructors who worked for me. And we would 
share the students and work with them. I also ran the racing team and took them around Switzerland on the weekends. The, the school gave me a van, and we'd go to Verbier, Chamonix, all the great resorts, Zermatt, Sospe, uh, Franz Montana. I mean, really, fun. <laughs> great time. Uh, the, but it was a, just a fun time for me to... Then, at the mid-year, I, the, I was only working from 1.30 to 4 every afternoon. That was my job. But the director of the school called me in in January and said that one of the political science teachers had to leave. And he noticed I had a political science degree, but I like to take on a political science class at, at the school. And I agreed to. So I wound up teaching political science along with skiing for about half the year. It was, I don't know how I ever looked into that, but I did. You don't have any ideas how John sought you out to teach? Yeah, I was climbing with Royal Robbins, who was a very famous climber at the time. Uh, maybe the best, some people said the best climber in the world. He came here at Royal, and I put up a couple of roofs out on the granite. And when we got done climbing one day, he said, do you ski? And I said, yeah. He said, do you instruct? And I said, yeah, I I've been a racing coach, and I have uh, I have a certification from Intermountain Ski Association. Because I was doing some teaching. I did some at Brighton and then some at Alton. And uh, he said, well, you know, I was supposed to take this job over in Laysan, Switzerland, but I can't go, and I'm trying to find somebody who's a climber and a skier. So if you, if you got a hold of John Harlan, maybe he would hire you. So I wrote a very fanciful letter didn't figure anybody would even read it, sent it over. And about a, five days after I sent the letter, I got a cable. That's how people communicated that. Now, the cables, it was a telegram that said, job open, come over, bring your wife. And my wife, I was married, and I had a child. I had a one-year-old boy. And we all three flew over and spent that year in Switzerland. That's great. That's great. Uh, what was your relationship like with Royal Robbins? Could you talk about climbing with him a little bit? And sort of, you know, was he already like a really prominent figure in the mountaineering community by the point that you were climbing with him? Yeah. Yeah, I was house-sitting for Rich Ream, one of my climbing friends, who was that summer running Signal Mountain Logic in the Tetons. And the phone rang one day, and it was Royal, and he said, is this Rich Ream? And I said, no. I'm the house sitter. He said, oh, well, it's Royal Robbins. And, uh, my, you know, the tradition of my mountaineers is to crash on somebody else's. Always, you never buy a motel room or anything. You always crash with some climber. And you can climb, call a climber in those days, you didn't even know, and get a room or get a bed and get breakfast. So Royal said, Liz and I are in town, and I wondered if uh, we could come by and stay there. And I said, of course. I mean, I knew the famous Royal Robbins. I mean, by then he'd done, uh, you know, the North American Wall and El Cap. And he'd soloed a number. He'd soloed the Muir Wall, and you know, I knew the guy was a gun. And so he came and he said, "You got any time to climb?" And I said, "Yeah, I do." So we went out and, and did two separate routes out on the granite, and uh, 
became very, very fast friends. In fact, I saw him a little bit when the show was here. Right. He was here for a day, and he's older now, and so am I. And, but we're still jiving each other and like each other. But I climbed with him later, you know, after uh, years went by at various times. And he a very, very amazing climber. And also, he makes that line of clothing you may be familiar with. Royal Robbins, are you familiar with Royal Robbins? Oh, yeah. He started that company, and he sold it since. He still does promotion for the new owners, but uh, he's done. And his wife Liz is an amazing woman. I think she's the business brains. Uh, How do you stay in touch with all these loosely, people? It's loose, you know. You, you cross over. Uh, I usually try to go to the trade show. Not that I'm interested in the gear, but the people. It's the social gathering place for the old climbing crowd. I go to the Tetons in the summer where it still crosses over as a place for the old climbers to come. A lot of the mountain guys at Epson Guides are my old friends. I've done a fair amount of guiding for Epson. So it's a really nice social network. It's so far removed from what I've done professionally. In fact, uh, when I first got elected mayor, it was election night, and I got a call from Modesto, California, and the climbers were having a party at Royal's house. And my second cousin, Chuck Pratt, was on the phone, and he said, quote, are you the fucking mayor? <laughs> said, yeah, I'm the fucking mayor. He's your second cousin, Chuck Pratt? Chuck is. Mm-hmm. And I... I said, what's it to you, Pratt? <laughs> he said, we got a bet. Half the room's got money on the table saying you are. The other half says you aren't. It was such a shock to my climbing buddies that I went into politics because climbers generally eschew politics. They tend to be scientists. They tend to be sort of left-brained. And, and really, politics is a right-wing sport. It really is. And you know, they never, ever thought I would ever do that. And I saw people in total amazement would have had a public career. But, you know, I was a Gabby kind of socializing guy. The rest of them all silent. And I would conquer a mountain by talking it to death, and they would conquer it by staring it down, you know. It's a difference. Okay. And all that time spent in the back country together, they probably have some good stories on you, right? So it's like... Uh, old, old Ted's the mayor now, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm the, not just the mayor, but I'm the fucking... <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe that's a good time to transition into your political career and um, how you went from, you know, being a ranger at the Tetons to um, working for a congressman. Is that correct? Good question. Um, I was teaching at Skyline High School. I taught there for seven years, and in the, my seventh year there, uh, I one of my students came up to me, Alexis Cairo, one of my favorites, and Alexis said. I'm working for this congressman, and he's looking for any opportunity he can to speak. I said, well, none of these kids are voters, Alexis, and they're never old enough. And, and she said, 
He doesn't care because he thinks they'll go home and say good things to their parents. So I invited this congressman to come speak in my class. His name was Wayne Owens. I was immediately attracted to him. He was young. He was a Democrat. He was right down my line politically. He was committed to money for education, all the right things. So he's getting ready to leave my classroom that day. And I said, Wayne, you know, if I could help you this summer, I don't think I'm going back to the Tetons this summer. It was 1972, and I had finished teaching. I had finished going as a ranger. Like my last summer as a ranger was 1970. So I, you know, Wayne didn't take a day calling me back and giving me a job to do if I would do it. So I went to work for him that summer, and. True. I think how they have big machines either at libraries. Uh, I spent the whole summer working 15, 16 hours a day for this guy. And we elected him. We beat a like a tenure incumbent Republican named Sherman Lloyd. And that was that. I went back to teaching and and uh, in March, I got a call from Wayne, and he was in Washington. He said, I want you to come back and be my chief of staff. And I said, what? I said, I don't know anything about Washington. He said, oh, you'll learn it. So I went back and walked in, and I'm running a, you know, a 21-person office. Uh, doing all of the, you, you can't believe how confused I was and how absolutely desperate I was for about three or four months until I started getting, and then to complicate it, we started to impeach Richard Nixon. It was during the Watergate, it was right after Watergate. And Wayne was on the House Judiciary Committee, which is the initial hearing area for the articles of impeachment that go to the full house. Starts in the House, and is the actual trial and impeachment goes to this. The House indicts, the Senate impeaches or runs a trial. And that really added a lot to our burden because Wayne was on the Judiciary Committee and stuff. So there I was in Washington and having to learn a tough new game. But you know, my climbing helped me. You know, I. I developed a saying, which I don't think is new to me. I think I probably copied it from somebody. But the mountain will teach you how to climb it. And no matter what you do in your life, the instructions for getting to success are right there in front of you. You just have to learn to adapt. And as a climber, as a, as a youngster, to go to, you know, those days, there was no sport climbing. We didn't have a bunch of bolt shoulders where to go. Uh, a rack of gear and a route that you think might come together based on what you looked at from the ground. When you climb that route for the first time, new route, you don't have a guidebook. You don't have anything but looking over here. You know, oh, there's a crack. Let's do the crack. Well, there's a little chimney. You know, oh, this thing blanks out. Walk down the ledge. There it goes. You know, all that, you know, mountains do teach you to climb them. And I kept thinking that when I was back in Washington. This is a mountain, man. It's <laughs> going to teach you how to climb it. As tough as it is, it's going to teach you how to climb it. But it did. But that's my motto for life. Mm. 
And did that experience really um, inspire you to spend the next uh, two decades, I guess, in politics? Well, you know, I guess it did because I did. Um, I never admitted that to myself. I always said, you know, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go back to the regular human being life. Uh, then Wayne uh, lost. We tried getting elected to the Senate in 1974, and Jake Garn was mayor of Salt Lake City, uh, beat him and went to Washington. They left a very nice old guy, but not really much of a mayor in charge of the city. He was appointed by the city commission. And I, in the meantime, had taken a job working for Salt Lake County as the social services director. And I looked at that opportunity and said, you know, maybe I'll have a stab at it. So I went at running against this older gentleman who was mayor and, and one of the commissioners that was a very bright young Republican, Steve Harmson. And I don't know how I won. I mean, because a poll was done, I didn't even announce it until August 9th for November. Politics was different. <laughs> uh, I announced, and a week later, the pollster said that 2% of the people had lied to him and said they knew who I was. And somehow I closed the gap and beat both those guys in the primary, and then beat the older gentleman that was mayor in the final. I'm not sure how that happened to this very day. No one can figure out how I beat him. I do know we worked extraordinarily hard. I was out every day banging on doors. We had a big rainstorm on election day, and I think the labor unions, which were very excited about me running because I'd worked with them when I'd worked for Wayne. I'd also built the Owens machine in Salt Lake City. That is people running voting districts that I could link to them. I think my troops went out in the rain and voted, and those guys were very cocksure about winning the primary. And they didn't prepare, and they lost. And that's how I got to be mayor. But then I'm mayor, because I wasn't supposed to win. I was just having fun, and I said to myself, this will sort of put my name out there for a real, I'll really run for something. Also, the mayor. And, you know, I don't know if you saw the Redford movie, but at the end of the movie, in the candidate, he says, what do I do now? He wasn't supposed to win, right? What do I do now? I went to work on Monday, January 4th, 1976, uh, what do I do now, you know? So, again, the mountain top of employment. So what were the local environmental issues at that time? Uh, parks. People wanted more parks. Uh, the city had not done a good job for 20 years in acquiring new land and enriching the parks. The parks were mainly worn out and tired, and, and I ran on that. I said, you know, these parks are abysmal. People love their parks. And, you know, if you ever run for political office on a municipal level, talk about parks. People mm -hmm. love parks. They may not even go to them, and they love them. And I, I ran on that, but I think the... I ran on the airport. The airport was a mess, and I ran on that. It's not an environmental issue. Uh, the canyons were, even then, a big environmental issue. People did not want a lot of development in the canyons, so I ran on the platform of denying water permits. The city has an extraordinary reach into the canyons because 
when the state constitution was written in 1896, Salt Lake City was given extraterritorial uh, control of all seven streams that feed this valley from the Wasatch Mountains. And so the city is really the protector of water quality and water rights in that drainage system. And so I ran really to continue a tradition which had started years before that the city would be very tough about giving water for development. Uh, the Jordan River was an issue. It was a mess in those days. There were dead animals floating down it. People were dumping things, either dry stuff on the banks or dropping cat, you know, horrible uh, chemicals into the river. The river was a stench pot. And I ran on that and said, we've got to clean the Jordan up. And then started some of the first things to get the Jordan clean. And today, you know, it's a reasonably clean river. Still gets a lot of effluence, but not like it used to be. Uh, cities along the river have come along on that and, and made it much better. Those were, as I recall, the big environmental issues at the time. No one talked about global warming then. It wasn't even conceived of. No one talked about uh, you know, even air quality so much. We didn't have the ozone problem we have now. We didn't have the automobiles we have now. Um, so some of the issues which are very pertinent today, particularly air and, air and water quality, except for the Jordan, uh, have changed a lot over the years. So would you say air and water quality are the big ticket items currently? And I would say air quality, water quality is in good shape. I think we take pretty good care of our water, but air is a huge challenge. Um, uh, you know, we've had these nice, beautiful-looking days that are filled with ozone. When you get up in the morning, you want to go for a run because the sun is shining, and you look at the report that says red alert, ozone day. That's not good. Children are being raised in that horrible environment. Have you noticed that since, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years ago, uh, change the, the pollution in the valley? Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. Longer periods in the winter of inversions and containments. I don't know if we've infected the inversion cycle because that's always been around, but it seems to me it's in more volume now. I don't know if somehow our carbon invasive lives has contributed to that or not, but it's certainly the pollution that does build up in, during inversions is much worse. Just so many more cars. Mm -hmm. And cars are about 50% of the problem. The rest would be home effluence, uh, gas burning in homes, uh, natural gas burning. Natural gas is pretty clean, but it still, still contributes. And, uh, you know, automobile exhaust is the big one. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's asked because even people talking about 10, 15 years ago, you know, the certain places in the west side where there's just big land developments now yeah. weren't developed at that point. They were farmlands and everything, so the populations just seem to have exploded in the past couple decades. I wish you guys could have seen the traffic when I was in my 20s. I mean, it was hardly any. And uh, it was totally changed on that level. 
so we were saying that air quality in particular is a big ticket item today. And um, did your work with the current governor, did you guys troubleshoot any mitigation for that? Yeah. Uh, I advise the governor, and he's doing it now even though I've left, is to encourage uh, converting our automobiles over to natural gas. I think that's the only way, unless we're tough about automobiles some way, which does not meet the American way of life, and tell people they can only have one car or they can only drive on alternate days. I mean, people propose things like that, but I don't think it would work. I think it would be, you know, people are too used to the automobiles being part of their lives. So the best way to approach is by fuel and changing fuel and encouraging automobile conversions. Now, conversion means you bought a gasoline-powered automobile, and now you're going to spend $5,000 to convert it over. That's not a good deal uh, in terms of economics. Why buy two fuel systems? So we need to get Detroit and Europeans and the Japanese to import dedicated vehicles that run on natural gas. Uh, and we need also to provide the filling stations. We only have three, I think, filling stations in the Salt Lake Valley right now for gas-powered vehicles. Uh, we need to make them as common as the service station, have service stations with that available. And we need to provide economic incentives for that to happen. All of that is doable. All of that is doable. A lot of it involves nat uh, national policy, and there is a bill that would allow a lot of that in Congress right now. Uh, it almost passed uh, in the last session of Congress, and it's been sitting there because the Republicans were sort of wedded to the oil companies. Of course, the oil companies are fighting this because they like to sell gasoline, and so it's a big political problem. But I think that is the most important thing we could do is to get our cars converted over to natural gas. It burns about 60% cleaner. And that's that would be huge to get that done. It's cheaper. The current market prices, uh, an equivalent gallon of natural gas is a dollar twenty-seven. And you're paying what, three fifty now for a gallon of gas. So there are some economic incentives there. Just a matter of getting people to think about it, getting Congress to move. So the governor's working on it as best he can. He's taken the idea to the Western Governors Association and the National Governors Association and become sort of the steward of that in those organizations. So he's doing what he can to move it through those organizations. Are there Utah-based uh, corporations that sort of create resistance to that conversion to natural gases, that is, you know, companies involved in uh, oil shale based in Utah? You know, a lot of uh, gas can come from shale beds. So the shale people are actually pro-natural gas. Um, and even the oil companies, you know, can convert their pumping to natural gas because there's not an oil bed in the world that just is surrounded by natural gas, just a natural effluence of it. Uh, but there is resistance from the American Petroleum Association, from the Utah Petroleum Association. Uh, I think that would dissipate if, if the correct amount of pressure was 
put on them because they do have an alternative. Uh, but I think the big game here is to get the public aware of it and keep talking about the air pollution, what we can do to solve it, and then bring this up as the alternative. Um, are there any local Utah issues that um, parallel the West, larger issues with the West that you see? Oh, yeah. We're very much in sync with the West on a number of issues. It's, uh, I think uh, urban planning is a huge new issue at all of the burgeoning cities of the West, whether it's Denver, Salt Lake, uh, Albuquerque, Las Vegas, even Boise. Uh, those cities are all expanding rapidly, and they all need better planning, better, better urban planning. Uh, this valley will double in population by somewhere between 2040 and 2050. We have a million one right now. Can you imagine 2.2 million? I mean, if we go the way we are now, it's going to look more like Queens than Utah. A lot of medium level high rise. You know, I guess I'm lucky I won't have to stick around. <laughs> There's some advantage to being older. <laughs> But I do think, you know, there's a whole new wave of localization. You know, freeways are jammed up now. Let's not build anymore. Let's resist new road building. Let's keep the roads we got. Let the very constriction itself force people to mass transit. Uh, more localized employment. Local communities. You know, you look at a great city like New York, which I think is a city. It's a great city not because it's New York, but because it's a million neighborhoods. A little Jewish neighborhood. You know, you got uh, the gays down in uh, uh, what part of New York City are the gays You know, one, two, right? You know, you got Soho, you got this neighborhood, that neighborhood, the same neighborhood, that neighborhood. You got West Harlem, East Harlem. I mean, those are exciting places because when you go to those places, there is a community. People that go to the same coffee houses and have the same discussions every day. People who go to the local markets who, who share little concerts in certain parts of the city. You know, it's a, a nice way of life for people. And, uh, what we've done with the West is we let this we let the freeway uh, invade our lives to where we we just learn to live in our cars. And the car is the worst place to socialize with people. You know what you do when you when you know somebody and you and they're coming at you, you step aside and let them pass. If you're in your car, you do this, right? You flip them off. Uh, what is it that our cars turn us into antisocial beings, aggressive beings? I want to be the first into the intersection. You know, uh, it's it's amazing how destructive the cars to our lives. Now we need our cars, and we need you know to go longer places, and it's still a nice way to do it. But but we've let it ruin our lives, particularly in the West, where I think we have nice poor cities. But then we go to suburbia, and it really becomes nothing but a bunch of uh, non-local restaurants, chains, becomes 
harried life of rushing off, and at night, mom's so tired coming home from work, all she does is buy a bag of hamburgers for the kids. We have poor nutrition. We have, you know, harried this, that, and the other. Even our recreation is so structured, nobody can stand it, you know? When I was growing up as a kid, we had to do our own. We made our own football league up, and we used old 50-cent helmets. We bought World War Surplus tank helmets, 50 cents. And we go out and play in weeded fields, and we had, we had our own football league. And we had to be innovative as kids. Now we've got our kids locked into ballet lessons, other music lessons. And the car is dominating everybody's lives because mom has to get in there continuously, and that's all she is is a chauffeur. Now I'm on a tirade. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, we really need to reevaluate how we live, bring it down to more localization, bring more grain into our lives, forget the damn television. I shouldn't say that because I'm a sportsman nut. But uh, start reading more, start philosophizing more, get more genuinely religious. A lot of people are religious and they're awful because a religion is thrown at somebody else's face. It ought to be Christ said, Buddha said, they all said, help somebody else out, right? They didn't say, throw it at somebody and say you're better than they are. And that's all religions do these days. Now I'm really going to another shot. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I wanted to kind of go through your political career. And so we talked a little bit about the beginning, um, the chief of staff, and then um, loosely as through your terms as mayor, um, and then advisor to the governor now. Um, but you also worked for Utah Rivers, is that? Correct, Utah Rivers Council for a couple of years, a wonderful small protector of the rivers in the state of Utah. Uh, loved it, had a great time. Then the governor asked me to go up, and I've always known those guys. I don't care if he's a Republican or, a, a, you know, whatever it is. The governor asked me to serve him. I serve him. The president asked you to serve him. Serve him, in my view. So I, I enjoyed two years of Gary Herman. He's not in sync with me on the environment in terms of sort of my way of doing it or thinking, but he's a very good human being. He's very open to suggestion, and he did listen to me a lot. That's all I asked. And so we're good friends. Continue to be. Mm -hmm. And so you transitioned out of that just yeah. recently. Working for a ski resort, worried uh -huh. about their environmental problems, which there are a lot of those in the ski resort because they, they're in the mountains and they're having to do with the federal government and a whole bunch of things. And so you're still working in the capacity of kind of environmental. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you had made mention about Silver Creek. Um, with the yeah, I don't think I'd want that on the. Well, I guess by the time this is on the record, it won't matter. Oh. But I can I can tell you what the problem is that when my company Talisker bought uh, the United Park City Mine Company, which had been sale for years. They bought a bunch of property, but along with that property, when you buy property, if it has uh, obligations on environmental matters, the EPA makes you buy the obligation. So the company has to be responsible for some of the effluents. 
that's going into the uh, sewer creek drainage. And we're working with the EPA right now to find out what that level is, how to do it, how to mitigate it. And so how did they find you? Um, I don't know. The guy called me <laughs> and said, come and talk. I think I met him once when I was working for the governor. Okay. And he's good friends with the governor. I think the governor wanted to get rid of me. Okay. That's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Um, And so I was also curious about um, kind of tying in the back to the recreation um, how you know you can make mention to not many people being in the backcountry or having the opportunity to really be the, the first out there um, and and then referencing current currently how it's a little more crowded um, and if you could speak to maybe the time where you saw um, a major transition into people getting out there and what you um, link that to, either gear or tourism? Um. Well, you know, the transition has been a slow evolutionary one over time. I think the curve looks like 45 degree line. Um, but I was always amazed that climbing became popular. Um, because, you know, when we were young, we thought we were so different. Because people used to call us cliff climbers. There's, it's, it's like saying nutballs or crazy guys. And we loved that. <laughs> because we discovered something that we loved, we felt was reasonably safe, and nobody thought it was good enough to emulate. Well, along came sort of the physical revolution of people getting more involved in environmental sports, gravity sports, you know, skiing originally, and then um, bicycle riding, human-powered sports, uh, running. All these started to build up, and as they did, I think people's logical saw themselves instead of running going up rugged terrain which led to climbing and then climbing itself changed over those years so much and it became diversified we saw the evolution of bolted climbing or sport climbing where people would go out and find a cliff somewhere and even something that you could not climb with traditional methods you could get to the top of it some way. You could rappel off and pound a bunch of bolts in it. You could take a crowbar and clean all the, the loose rock off of it and turn a choss pile into a, a decent climbing ground. And people all of a sudden said, hey, this is another way to climb. We, can, we may only go 80 feet, and we've drilled a bunch of bolts to protect us, to clip into so we won't fall off. But it's, you know, we can now push the difficulties and we, instead of worrying so much about falling off like the track climbers do, because, you know, their gear may be shaky and it may bolts don't come out. And we can now press ourselves to the very limits of climbing and find out how difficult climbing can become and do it. Even though, to me, that sport is more of a gymnastic sport. 
There's a bumper sticker that says, sport climbing is neither. A trad climber would have done that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not enough danger. There's, it's all based on, on you know, gymnastics, and it's really not climbing because you can't go above about 80 feet unless you're lucky enough to find one of the rare, completely bolted, what ought to be a trad climber, right? Uh, but to me, if people enjoy climbing, why not do boulder climbing? That's just great. I mean, they don't have to be trap climbers and take on the danger and the judgment and all of that. But to me, the real essence of climbing is dealing with the danger, figuring out the route, getting yourself out there and being committed, and then getting yourself home very safe and sound. None of those elements really are there in sport climbing. It's more for a fun Sunday afternoon or for some people take it really serious and do it every day, but they're basically gyms, in my view. Well, I would argue you have to have a community also to um, learn from and go out with. And being new to the community, I've um, been recommended, you know, go to Wasatch Touring. Or, um, and I think they've been around for a long time. Are there any real anchors in the community that have been pivotal or important to engaging people with the with the Wasatch? Or? Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You make such a valid point about community because, you know, anytime you get involved in a sport or something, it's so much fun to have others to talk with, speculate with, to brag with. <laughs> You know, and you brag by acting like you're not bragging. It's such a funny thing to watch. You know, you do a new route somewhere, and you knew it was hard, and you knew your buddy had now climbed it, and he almost fell off. So you go to the next Alpenbug meeting, and you sit around, and you don't say a word, because if you brought it up, you'd be scorned, which your company brings it up. So you're talking about how hard that route was that you just did, and you, of course, write it there, so. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way people are, and they want to be together. And this is, we had the Alpenbach Club, we had the Wasatch Mountain Club, and I would, I don't think I've ever really been a member of the Wasatch Mountain Club, but I've hung around and have known them for my lifetime. And they're great people, and I enjoy them. And uh, we had sporting, we had uh, equipment stores, the old Timberline Sports, which was out on Highland Drive and about 33rd South, was a wonderful gathering place. You didn't have to buy something. You go into Timberline to jog, or somebody who was there they hadn't seen for a while, or, or in the evening after they closed up, we'd all go use fake ID to buy a six pack of beer. I mean, it was great that sort of congealing of people. And so, any sport has a social dimension, and climbing has a very special social dimension because. Uh, I think even today it does. You know, climbers are a unique breed and they enjoy each other and uh, they share something that's very special. Certainly the gyms have functioned as a as a site for social networking now. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I still go out to the gym once in a while just to jog. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't climb much in gyms anymore. In fact, I don't like climbing in gyms mm-hmm. very much. Uh, I went out, I took my, I have a grandson that's a really good old gym climber. I went out the other night and light. And I didn't even touch the 
get I think a pair of shoes on just listen running shoes on and spend the evening blame him and join with people mm-hmm. at, a, at a ball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He did a twelve D. Kids come along. Yeah. <laughs> um what about your um are you still with Exum Guides or no, yeah, did you enjoy uh, guiding? I don't guide for Exum anymore. Uh, too busy and too old. Uh, uh, you get a certain age, you don't want to guide anymore. Uh, but I still, every summer, roll into the, they call Guides Hill in the Tetons, where the guys have their little shacks they live in, and walk around, talk to everybody, see what's going on. You know, there's Jack Tackle, he just got back from doing a big route in Alaska and hear about the route and he gives me all the inside and talk and walk around and jaw with them and so yeah and Jackson Mountain guys I have a bunch of friends down there Paul Horton and others I stop there by their office and check in with them the social network goes on and it's a relief for me because none of these people really care about politics uh-huh. they get away <laughs> from it you know they'll sometimes ask me a political question. Because they kind of get interested now and then. How they act like I know the answer. Yeah, I have a question for you about that, just because you mentioned before that climbers are generally kind of apolitical. Um, So I was kind of curious for why you think that is. What about climbers sort of um, makes them generally disinterested in politics or unwilling to sort of like debate big political issues or whatever it is. That's a tough one because, you know, climbing for some reason over the years has attracted uh, people who are analytical uh, to a fault. Uh, a lot of mathematicians, a lot of physicists, a lot of scientists or climbers. Um, and they they see the world in more rigorous, they see the more rigorous side of the world. It puts them off to have to deal with human motivation, human greed, human need, all these things we are as humans because it's not easily formulated, it's not easily constructed. And so their minds tend to shy away from those things that politicians dealt in when they get excited about moving groups of people or initiating reform or building programs. It's it's kind of out of they're more left brain, and that's why I said earlier, politics is more right brain. Uh, I love the best the best definition of politics I've ever seen was the art of the possible. Art is right brain. The possible is what can you do to make something better? I used to say to my students here on the top poly site eleven hundred. Okay, it's the art of the possible. Is it possible to get better student parking on campus? We all concluded that it was not. <laughs> Uh, but they, you have to think around the lines of what, what do you need to do on this? Is it possible to get this country out of recession? Is it possible that the art was applied last night by Barack Obama in a, in a big fiery speech? 
probably not, but some will come from that. You know, climbers don't like that very much. They tend to be more analytical. They want a formula for, you know, how further engineer, right? You know. Yeah, at the same time that there's this kind of rigor and analytical dimension to climbing and maybe it's just a lot of climbers, like personalities and everything, it seems like there's this huge kind of imaginative dimension um, as well, like just seeing routes, imagining how you could accomplish that. And so there is a little bit of that left brain maybe involved in there too. Um, and also, you know, there's certainly sort of... Uh, conflict between personalities and climbing um, that you'll get in any sort of political field yeah. as well, right? So um, I'm kind of curious about that, that sort of like tendency towards rigor, but yet like the necessity for this imaginative side in climbing that is equally important in political fields as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you got a point there that, uh, that there are some definite crossovers both ways but you know I've just known so many climbers that were mathematicians and engineers and scientists and you know they one of the link ups to politics with climbers that's emerged in the last 20 years has been regard for the environment and when they find out the local cliff is threatened or uh, we're destroying the forests and we're doing this we're doing that they sometimes become very active in politics. Uh, and if the American Alpine Club is doing a lot more on the environmental issues. The Sierra Club was founded by climbers and evolved into a generalized environmental organization, far different than the climbing that originally constructed the Sierra Club. So there's an evolution in there over environmental issues. And the same is true on a local level with like the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance too, right? Exactly. Working on environmental issues and buildings of that nature. So, yeah, I think there is a direct link, but but still, I, I still see a lot of climbers being more coming through the analytical side of life than from the social side of life. Although it's interesting to take those same groups and they become very socialized within their group. They may not be terribly social or political out of it, right. but within their group, they are. I was wondering if you had had any campfire conversations about this, you, the, you know, this theory. Oh, many, many. Because wherever I go in the climbing world, they're very intrigued by me because I was a, one of the few that became a politician. And so I often hear about the issues. I often hear their feelings about issues. They want to talk about that. At least they're kind of fascinated by that side of me. Um, John Roskell, who was one of the great Himalayan mountaineers, became a county commissioner up in the city of Washington, Tacoma, I think, that county. And I saw John at an American Alpine Court meeting one day, and I said, you get the same stuff I do? He was sort of fascinated about the fact he became a politician. He said, all the time. By the way, he's a real right-winger, a real super conservative. I mean, probably a Tea Party guy. <laughs> Very good climbers if they go political, go Tea Party, you know? But yeah, usually a little more fringy. Ross Kelly's kind of a hard nose, as always. Do you know the guy? I've, I've heard stories about him. Yeah. He's the only 
one that I know. Oh, an old friend of mine um, was once the mayor of a city in New York. Uh, okay, now I'm trying to say an old friend. I'm trying to remember his name. He was a Bulgarian at one time. The Bulgarian mountain club was an outrageous bunch of climbers that came out of the Schwangart Mountains in New York. Uh, oh, I lost his name. But he was a mayor. And he and he and I used to share mayor stories. I've come to see That's what happens when you're over 70. I said to my wife last night, who are you? <laughs> Do you have any favorite mayor stories? Oh, I got a video. <laughs> You'd have to tell me what category. <laughs> category <laughs> I can't let you choose. <laughs> well, you know, the life of the mayor is full of stories. I don't know. Um, one time I, I was a new mayor, and my predecessor had actually done most of the work, but when I became mayor, I took what he had done. And I got a foothill ordinance passed. A foothill ordinance that would protect everything about 5,200 feet. So we didn't have homes all over the high mountains around the city. And I got that passed. And <clears throat> I got this lovely invitation from San Francisco. I think it was a trust for public lands. Would you fly to San Francisco and would you give a speech at our gathering? And I was only on the job for maybe two months. And Quite excited about the invitation. I've never been asked to do something important. So I got, they sent me a first class air ticket, ticket. I went to the airport, got on the plane, uh, very hot. Kind of complained about the meal he served, because that's what important people do. Landed in San Francisco, and they said, Oh, Mayor Wilson, uh, don't go down the concourse here. They're picking you up on the tarmac. They took me out a special door, of course, and there was a limousine waiting. And they put me in the back of it, and I sort of drove into town and turned on the TV and watched, let's make a deal. I got into town, and they took me to Sir Francis Drake, and walked me up the stairs. I was greeted, of course, by a greeting committee. And I was taken upstairs to where I was giving this great speech. And I gave a great speech. And I was applauded greatly. And I came back to the airplane, reversed it back slowly. I pull into the Salt Lake Airport line, pull up to the gate. In those days, we did not have second level loaning. You had to get out of the plane, walk across the tarmac to get into the concourse. And there was a sign, and it said, Welcome home, Ted. And I thought, well, this is very appropriate to the day that I've had. Uh, you know, it's been a big day for me. I was in San Francisco. It was greatly applauded. Airlines treated me rather well. And some of my staff, or maybe my family, or maybe even a group of citizens, has come together to offer me home. As I got off the plane, I started walking toward the tarmac. I was trampled by a group of people getting to Ted Remington, the return missionary from Japan. Pretty, pretty important, man. Huh? Nobody was there. I had to go find an payphone before cell phones to call to say, where's my ride? Well, I learned something. 
That sounds like a good, yeah. a good lesson to have. <laughs> and, you know, you, you learn pretty quickly that you're not really as inflated as you think you are. Right. I was unclear. Um, you were in the National Guard, is that correct? I was. And then did you go to Berlin? No. Okay. No, we were called up in 1961 as a result of the Berlin crisis. Uh, and what happened was the Soviets decided to build a wall in East Berlin to block what well, they were losing the people. People were sneaking out of Berlin every day, out of East Berlin, coming over to the West because the economy was so much better than us. Communism was not serving Eastern Europe very well at the time. And so the Eastern European flow into the West was huge, particularly in Berlin. So the wall the famous wall that you get, probably in your life, saw it tore down. Did you both see that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, you see that. Uh, and it alerted, and, and then after they built their wall, they cut off travel because East Berlin, you know, when they, when they partitioned Germany after the war, they gave the eastern segment to the Soviets and the western segments to the five western companies. Countries, America, France, Britain, somebody else. And the city of Berlin, capital, was also a segment, but it sits within Eastern Europe, Eastern Germany. And the only way to get into it is to fly in or to ride in on a freeway. That's the only way you get in because the rest was ominous, and there was an iron curtain there, literally, not literally, figuratively. And and so this partition was cutting Berlin off, and they had to start flying supplies into Berlin, and the Soviets were threatening war over it. They were angry, and we were angry. And so Kennedy called up the National Guard. I joined the National Guard simply because there was a draft. I was no hero. Uh, if you didn't join the Guard, you'd probably get drafted and go serve full-time. By joining the Guard, you'd serve part-time. So we got called up to full-time status, and we were sent to Fort Hood and readied, if necessary, to go to war in Europe, which would have been the Third World War, which would have been devastating. So we sat down at Fort Hood and trained and all of that. That's how that came to be. Were you politically active during Vietnam? You know, I really wasn't, because I just got out of the military, served my time, and I went off to graduate school in economics at the University of Washington, took my young family, had two children then. And we lived up in Seattle. And that's when, you know, we had Kent State, when we had bombing of Cambodia, when we had all these huge crises. And students were demonstrating every day and stuff. And I was sort of the graduate student. I thought, you know, I was with them sympathetically, but I didn't have time to go. I served my time. I really was, I think back on that, I told my wife, I said, I was so separate from the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I didn't want to be in Vietnam. I hated what was happening. But I didn't put a lot of emotion into it. I really didn't. Uh, and yeah, a lot of my friends and younger friends in particular were deeply into it, deeply emotional. You split the country right down the middle. Well, you think it's bad now, 
you know, between Republicans and Democrats. That was really sad, you know. Particularly when those students were shot in Kansas State. That really, really showed the depth of the problems in the country. I had a concern when I was up at the University of Washington, I had a very conservative econ professor in microeconomics. His name is Henry Beachel. He's a little tiny guy. He's very fiery. And I appreciated both sides of the economic debate. He was a monetarist. I was a Keynesian. But I, went, I enjoyed his class. One day he was in there giving us his right-wing rhetoric, and a bunch of students came in that were members of SDS, and they grabbed him and tried to haul him out. He said, you are not fit to teach in the university, you right-wing. And wow. Old Henry Beach, all five foot four, maybe 110 pounds, put up his dukes and started a fist fight with these guys. <laughs> there were a couple of kind of big football players in the class, and they got up and they kicked the SDS guys out of the room. Well, Richard Nixon heard about it and flew Henry Beachel back to the White House and gave him a medal of honor for fighting these guys in this classroom. That's the kind of stuff that was going on. And one day, they were having a big demonstration on campus, and there must have been 5,000 students out there, and I thought, I had nothing to do with lunch, so I went out and joined them and sort of stood around. And we had Angela Davis, who was a Black Panther speaking, and had a big deal. And some guy from Yakima drove in with a truck and unloaded about 10 hives of bees. And these bees, he just hurled off the back of his truck and took off. And these bees went all over the crowd, and the crowd dispersed. <laughs> people were getting stung. You know, that's very dangerous. Some people get shocked from that. And there was Angela Davis up there trying to finish her speech, and there was nobody. They'd all run. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. And then one day I went to campus and they had burned the ROTC building down because uh, they were training American service officers. And somebody during the night had burned the whole building down. Really amazing. And one morning I went to campus and there was there were like 40,000 little crosses of somebody you put on the quad at the University of Washington. And that was the most powerful thing I ever seen. One for every death, which at that point was about 40,000. Can you imagine having the time and the energy of putting up 40,000 crosses? This might be connected to the earlier question I was asking you. You know, this. You know, political activism such as that, like what you're talking about right now, obviously requires a ton of time. Uh, being passionate about spending time in the mountains, mountaineering, also becomes obsessive and just involves this huge time investment. Does that does that play a part at all in sort of maybe some mountaineers or climbers just not being that politically active? Well, climate is totally absorbing if you let it be. I don't think I ever let it be. I'd always worked, always had a job, always had responsibility. I had a young family, got married relatively young at the age of 24. Uh, we are different, you know, than climbers now that tend to dive into it full time. Uh, we couldn't do it full time. We had to make a living. And 
I don't know how they do it. Somehow manage. Or there are ways of getting into climbing now, uh, running climbing stores, guiding, things that we never had an opportunity to do. Even some professional climbers like the North Face team and all of that, none of that was available then. So we were all had to be normal, everyday working citizens as well. So we tend to diversify out more. We didn't train. I mean, nobody ever went to a gym and pumped iron or, or bouldered all the time to get to be. We just used our little skinny bodies and went out and climbed, you know. That's all we had. Um, so I think it's changed a lot. And people now have the ability to absorb themselves maybe 100% into the sport where we've never had that option. So that's we were rich. And the few rich climbers I knew were cracky climbers for some reason. <laughs> Tell me why. I don't know. We're tough enough. <laughs> I have one other question. You know, kind of leave the rest to you. Sorry to intrude a bit. But, um, you know, mountaineering, mountaineering seems to have influenced your political career uh, and your, your politics from what you said. Um but did politics influence your mountaineering career or mountaineering life? Well, that's a great question. I never really thought about that much. Uh, well, there is a political side to mountaineering, and it comes when you get a group of people to go do something. And within the body itself, there's politics. Uh, at least on a personal level. Who's going to lead? Who's going to do this? Who's going to decide? If you go on an expedition, who's the expedition leader? And what's the, what's the pecking order? And who gets this and who gets that? And all that kind of stuff. And when I did the mountain rescue on the Grand Teton in 1967, the North Face thing, which we've talked about, um, there's a definite political order to how we worked on that. Uh, P. Sinclair was appointed by the Park Service to be our leader, and so we honored that. Hey, what do we do now? Where do we go? What do you want to do? Uh, but Pink, in typical mountaineering fashion, kind of analyzed each one of us, played us like a chessboard. Um, He saw individual talents that we each had and called upon those. Um, when the initial exploration was done by helicopter to find out who they were, where they were, and what the problem was, uh, he took Rick Reese because Rick was maybe the most analytical of our entire group. Um, to get up the mountain in a hurry to get to the ledge where they were, he picked Mike Aramark and myself because Mike and I were both very, very strong free solvers. We could climb without a rope. Now, we didn't do a lot of free soloing, but we were confident mountaineers and confident climbers and wanted us to get to the group fast. So Mike and I went next. Uh, Bob Rubine and, and, and uh, Lee Orton were already on the mountain, so their role was not being structured in this political order. Ralph Kingy, a brilliant climber, but also very, very good with people, particularly people who aren't as good a climber. And he brought up the backup team, 
So he was doling these assignments out, kind of based on our basic talent. So that was a political decision. Uh, and then the way he ran the rescue on the mountain was basically everything that had to be decided was a group discussion. It was very democratic. We never voted on anything, and Pete made final decisions, but you know, we all had our input, and we all felt like we were part of the process. So that, to me, was, you know, that rescue was never inhibited by bad organization, simply because we all had knew our own niche. We all did our Bob Irvine, who's a very linear guy, mathematician, everything has to be correct for Bob. And he became like a safety board that watched over the rescue. And let us know when he thought any one of us is doing something that might become unsafe. Uh, you'd see somebody out scrambling around on a ledge without a rope on. You say, get a rope on. You need a boy. You know? It's just that kind of stuff. So, and he ran the drum. It was very difficult to lower the, the only technique we had, doing very long wars. Anyway, yeah, I think there is a measure of the interplay the other direction uh, that. My political life was influenced by climbing, and climbing was influenced by politics to some degree, at least in the group sense. And we, even if you're climbing with just one other person, there's a political side to it. You know, I don't want to do that lead, but it's my lead. How do I finesse it over the other guy? <laughs> well, how did you Rick, you're better on ice than I am. <laughs> how did you figure out in fun times, you know, skiing? Who would be able to take the first line down? You guys all. Oh, that was that was strictly a, a mean, in-your-face deal. Oh yeah. Like, hey, Dick, hang on just a second. I need to have you check my binding. Dick turns around. You go right behind. <laughs> there was no politics there. That was strictly force and aggression. Well, maybe a little bit. We were nice about it. We, you know, you got the last run, you can have this one. We did something to it. But occasionally, one of the great joys of power skating was leaving your buddies to the to slope and have no tracks. Uh huh. <laughs> to this day. To this day. That remains to this day. day. <laughs> when you're out with your buddies, there's three or four of you, and you're looking at untracked slopes. You can't be the one that wins your round. So there was no. On the other hand, if it tends to be an avalanche situation, I mean, we were skiing a ridge in Canada once. We flew up into the Mount Cinnabon area and we were doing backcountry skiing on these beautiful slopes and there was a great big bowl that was so inviting. But it was windlocked. And, you know, the inclination would be just to jump into it before your buddies did. But we all thought, oh. So we're standing there talking about whether we had to ski it or not, because it was so wind-loaded. And we were 10 feet from where Bull started. We are standing back on a ridge. The whole thing slid. It left a four-foot fracture line. It must have cut 2,000 feet in the release zone down. It would have buried anyone that's about 25 or 30 feet or so. So sometimes our better judgment did kick in, and I'm glad it did that day. That was really scary. Did you have any guys in the group that um, were more of a daredevil that made you uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. Because perhaps you would have to be 
now and then, you know, there would be somebody that got a little out of hand. Even one of us maybe just had too much fun and we had to trim them down and say, hey, come on, man, let's, let's be a little more careful. We, we, did, we did have a measure of policing that went along with it. But there, did you ever have to do rescues in regards to avalanches? Um, Never had to dig anybody up. No, it's so lucky that way. Um, we we started mountain rescue, and I think we've already covered this ground in the interviews. But we we did mountain rescue in the old Alfenbach Club for the sheriff. Mm-hmm. And when somebody else was hurt, we'd go out as a team and do the rescues. Uh, and then we carried that on into our rescue life up in the Tetons. Do you have anything else pressing? Pressing? Um, no, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe one other thing. Um, hey, you mentioned free soloing as a climber a little bit, and you mentioned losing a close friend in Switzerland who lost his life solo skiing. Um, did you solo ski much? What are your thoughts on uh, the safety or lack thereof of, of solo skiing? Well, I go solo a little bit now these days, but, but I know some very safe places to ski, and I don't ever go where on a Day that I think the avalanches are bad. I, I might take off on a Sunday afternoon and run up and ski Willows Hill in the Willows, which I think has hadn't slid for 45 years. I'll do that. And but by the way, it's not very soulful. You get up to drug people, Brad. If you have to get an ambulance, it'd be right there. And I do wear my beacon, even when I'm so I do some of that. Um, I did some solo climbing. I did. I went through a period. It wasn't too many years ago, maybe about eight or nine years ago, where I, I just wanted to go out and do some of my old routes without a rope on. And I did. I went out and climbed a couple of the routes on the granite and kind of put my head in the framework of the free solo disregarded what was below me and just climbed it. And I actually enjoyed it. Uh, What's that thrill like uh, compared with, you know, climbing with a partner, climbing on a rope? Uh, well, it, you have to trust yourself. Uh, and you, you can't get, ever get frightened. You have to put that aside. You don't have a frightened. You don't have a, a panic mode. You know, you have to go out and trust yourself. But I was doing Five seven, I mean five eight. I would never go for solo anything harder than that. Uh, some of these people do. They're climbing at the edge some of them, but a lot of them die in there. You know, it's, it's a very extreme sport. I think it, I was really glad I was now fifty five years old when I did that. Maybe even a little older than that, and I thought I'm sure glad I didn't discover this when I was younger, because it is kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I discovered this when I was younger and maybe a dead man. <laughs> yeah, there's that big article recently in National Geographic about free soloing in Yosemite on the big walls there. Yeah. Some of the things that uh, some of the extremes people take it to are pretty amazing, terrifying. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, they're really pushing it, you know. When a guy like Derek Hershey, who was such an amazing pre-solo, falls off the north face of Sentinel, which is a pretty safe climb because you're in chimneys all the time. It's hard to fall off the chimney. You know, you know that you can fall anywhere. I mean, one of the greatest mountaineers, mountaineers in the world, Maurice Rimsock, uh, fell out of a little, fell off a, a, like a 5-4 climb above um, uh, Grenoble, France. You know, one of the great mountaineers in the world. Went out free solely one day on a very easy route and fell off of it. My friend George Gardner went out two years ago. He's a guy for Epson. Went free soloing on the lower Epson, which should be a pretty safe free solo. George saw it and kept himself. So. I have some light-hearted questions just about, you know, what were your favorite pair of skis or... Um, oh, my favorite pair of skis. I had a pair of Steiner's and multi-grooves when I was about <laughs> 16 years old. They had just come out. They had this amazing black finish to it. It was at Steiner's and up here. had some beautiful cosmetic grooves on the surface. And when you turn them over, they had this really weird base. It had, there was no single groove that had dominated skiing up to that point. It was sort of this weird base slowest nail. Terrible base to base with, but they were hot skis. They were my favorite skis. I wish I had kept those just around. You know. When did you get your first pair of plastic boots? You transitioned from leather to... Gosh, I think I bought a pair of Dela boots when I got home from Europe about 1965. The first plastic boots I ever owned. I had bought a, I had gone to Carl Molitor's shop in Vengen, Switzerland, and had Carl Molitor, the famous old Swiss bootmaker, made me a pair of customized leather Molitor boots, which were state of the art in 1964. Everybody still skiing the leather then. And they were gorgeous. And I just killed myself down to one day, I think, back in the past. Day. Took them down to Desert Industries. They were beautiful boots and uh, custom made for my feet. But it was right after that I got home and I once had a pair of Dela Boot Magnesium ski boots. You ever seen Magnesium? Made them out of metal. Magnesium. Which is very light. And they were really, people make flower parts out of them. What do you ski with now? You have an AT set up, uh, I have an AT set up, yeah. I have a pair of Black Diamond. Uh, they're a little bit older now. They're called crossbows. But they're still very light and nice. Um, and I have a pair of Dina Fit boots, Dina Fit bindings uh, for backcountry skiing. And I, uh, lift skiing, I have a pair of uh, Solomon Czars. That I use, and then I have a longer sort of giant slalom ski for for icy days. Now, what is that? It's a K2, a little bit longer, longer by today's standards, 190s. Did you grow up like waxing and tuning your own skis? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
that was just a rite of passage to know how to how to do that. Yeah, and we waxed. In fact, when we first started back country skiing, we didn't use scales; we used ski wax. You know, using techniques that uh, you can climb with the ski wax. You know, and then it breaks off, and you can slide. But it's hard to climb very steep with that stuff, so that kind of went out to quit doing it after a year or two. Well, any memorable experiences? I had wanted to talk to you about your other travels um, to India, and, um, but I feel like we've kind of reached, a, we've covered a a lot. Um, use a lot of your time, but well, we could do India for the next hour. <laughs> 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 um, but if, now maybe we could close on any just real memorable experiences for you. And it could be political or um, solo trip in the Wasatch or an overnight traverse where somebody's gear broke. It's not even about climbing. I think. One of the most inspirational moments of my life, and I didn't want it to be that, it was when I had a chance to go in with my wife and my wife's sister and two other people to visit the Dalai Lama. And I thought, well, this is kind of what movie stars do, and I'm not going to be too affected by this man. I'd go meet him and enjoy it. And, you know, you put up your guard for some reason. I didn't want to be emotional at all. I mean, I was no great Buddhist follower or anything at the time. I was just a guy. But we, the Tibetan people in Salt Lake, because we helped them after this Tibetan Act was passed, to kind of move into the community, asked them to go over and invite the Dalai Lama to Salt Lake City. So we went over, we went to New Delhi, and then we took the train up and we went up to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama has his. his Tibetan headquarters of the free Tibet. And he, we prearranged the meeting with him. And while we were walking down the street of Dharmasala, we ran into this couple from Utah. I didn't know them, but they recognized me because of that. I was the former mayor. And they said, uh, What are you doing? And we said, Over oh, here we have an appointment, we have an audience with his holiness. And they said, is there any way we can come in with you? And they were nice people. And the name, family name was Kazini. His name was Riza Kazini. And I think his wife was named Kari or something like that. They were Iranian. Uh, and, but I could see something in them that for some reason they really needed to go in with us. First, I was put off by it a little bit. It's hard enough for me to get in, let alone drag a bunch of people. But something about the request hit me. And so I called up to His Holiness's residence and talked to the chief security guy. And he said, Do you know these people? I said, Yes. And he said, Can you give me their passports? And he said, I think I can. And so I did. And he let them come in with us. So now there was myself, my wife, Marilyn my wife's sister, and, and the, and the Cassinis. And we went in and waited in a security holding area, and then uh, a very nice tall monk, probably a bodyguard, but he has monk clothes on, came and said, it's time to see his holiness. So we 
we walked in a little passageway and His Holiness was standing at the other end and put a little scarf on each of us to, to bless us and he gave us a little blessing and we went in the room and we sat down. And I was doing the Chamber of Commerce stuff. I was, the Holiness, we'd like to invite you to come to Utah. You know? I had a letter from the governor and a letter from all the big wigs. Thank you very much. We, had, we sat and, and and we had a wonderful time with him. We were just talking and, and sharing stories. And he was fun and he was humorous. He had all these big monks in the room. And, and every time he would say something even slightly funny, they'd all go, <laughs> I call it designated laughers. And I said, the only if you have designated laughers. He said, yes, that's what they do. <laughs> you know, a very jolly guy. And that was all great. And But I wasn't into, you know, it was wonderful, but I met big leaders before, you know, I was kind of, all of a sudden, something very unusual happened. He looked at the Cassinis, who didn't show this to me. I couldn't read this. You are upset. I mean, this guy's got antennas like this, you know. And all of a sudden, the tears flowed out of the Cassinis. And I thought, what is going on here? It's super strange. And she finally wrote down and said, Oh, you're holiness. We came to Donosol with some hope of seeing you because our son killed himself last year. And I still get emotional about this. Excuse me. He did a very unusual thing. He didn't counsel him. He didn't say anything. He walked over, and they were sitting together, close to her. He grabbed her face and his face. And pulled him. Yes. My wife said you knew about this, but the memory was so poignant. I was a boob man too, <laughs> and he held them together to his face like that, and all he said was "sad." That's all he said when he released. Well, that was one of the emotional highlights of my life. Didn't have anything to acclaim me. <laughs> Had to do with the need of this couple, this amazing man. Well, we left. We decided to have lunch after. We went to a little restaurant because some of were buying because hands back for getting in there, and I thought that was fair. <laughs> but they were like remade. 
Huh. You know, I think the thing I would. But I think what I learned was that the most sincere acts of kindness are the most simple. You know, people lose people, we go to the funerals, we say, oh, you know, he was so great, and we extol the dead, and we 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 do all of that, and, and we have these big fanfares, and people love to say they're religious, don't worry, God needed him upstairs. Bullshit, you know? Maybe God did, but I don't think God kills people because he needs them upstairs, you know. Um, I think that the key the brilliance of the Dalai Lama is that he understands simplicity and pure acceptance of something. He didn't say Oh, do not worry. He's a great spirit. He didn't say any of that. He just said sad. He just did that for everything. He wanted to go with that, with, his, with, that, with that genuine gesture of pulling the faces. And I, when I go to funerals these days, I don't get into all of I, I use his words. I say to sad. Uh-huh. Let's move on, you know. I don't know why I'm so emotional about that. I, I've never been able to tell the story. So I'll do what I do. I'll break it. So I'm curious. I'm trying to visualize um, him pulling their faces together. Yeah, that won't be very important. You sent me. <laughs> I just want to make sure we're not you know, running the end of tape. Because... Well, we pretty much are. We have 12 minutes left. But um, so he put his palms like on the back of their head and kind of just moved them. Well, you're both facing me. If right. I walked over to you two and did this, right? That's okay. what he did with them. Okay. That's what he did. Step. He held it there for like a full minute. You know how long a minute is when something like that's going on? And my wife and I and Marilee are crying. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it seems like one of those situations that almost like defies description. You know, it's just like powerful being there in that moment, and just that sort of breaks on any sort of like like fanfare routine or tradition or anything like that. It's just like a pure kind of human moment. Yeah, I really felt like I'd been admitted to the holy of holies. If the Buddhists have a holy hands, you know, I mean, uh, he was just showing why he was famous. Then we brought him to Salt Lake, and it was tons of fun. You know, he came in 70, or I mean, in 19, in 2001, and I was sort of in charge of his visit, and uh, we took him all over, rented a limousine, put him up at the governor's mansion. 
uh, his special cook cook for him, and he we drug him all over. We took him to the Salt Palace for a big speech. We had him before twelve thousand people at the Huntsville Center here. A woman got up when he asked her questions. Said, "Your Holiness, Your Holiness, tell us about children." And he said, "Oh, the children, they are miserable. You should always protect them and give them a good education and be kind and don't get." Don't get mad. Just put your arm around them and be loving. They're the greatest thing in our world. Now, I'm a monk. I am a children. <laughs> I would not be proper to a monk. <laughs> mm, I may beat them. Laugh like crazy. He has that ability you know, to, to level with you on your level. Be your kids, <laughs> but then raise you to a higher standard. I'm writing down to uh, uh, Utah County with him. He's got to make an appearance at Southern or at uh, Utah Valley University, where he's now college. In. And we're riding along, and I look on his arm, and he's got a thirty thousand dollar Rolex. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is the man of non-materialism. So I say to him, Your Holiness, that is a gorgeous watch you're wearing. And he looked at me like this and he goes, Well, I do like this. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Mr. Gear gave this to me. Richard Gear gave this to me. You know, Gear is his big advocate and follower. And, uh, you know, he was just full of humor and he was good natured. And, and uh, I. But I could hear him yelling at his monks. You know, I, I left him, took him out of the governor's mansion, dropped him off, so he went in the room. I think Dieter's there, and I heard, I heard him, and they're saying, No, we need to do more of this muscle walk. And she was giving him help, you know. He's very human. <laughs> Wonderful man. I mean, I, I don't know him or anything. I just kind of, you know, a couple of places where I could be there treat him my life. I studied Buddhism after that, and I still consider myself to be a Mormon Buddhist. I'm not an active Mormon, but if I were a good Mormon, I would be a Mormon Buddhist. You know, uh, Mormons need more attention to the introspective life. You know, they're so social; everything is done on a social level or outwardly. They need a little more of this. But that's my criticism of the Mormon Church. Thanks, Ted. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot Utah dot E-D-U. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hole for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm-hmm.